Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Happy Friday. We have a fantastic show planned for you on this Friday. Delano Squires is going to join us. He's going to tell us how the movie mogul Tyler Perry and Colin Kaepernick can end this whole communism movement oh here in America. I can't wait to hear that. But he's written a terrific column about it. But before we do all that, we're going to go out to Los Angeles and be joined by my good friend, friend of the program, LeVar Arrington, after I start this fire. Come on, bro. Let's do this. All right. Upon releasing Richard Sherman from custody Thursday evening, the presiding judge fell, uh, hailed the football star as a pillar of the community. Police arrested Sherman after the free agent cornerback violently tried to break into the home of his in-laws, threatened to kill himself and harm his wife, and drunkenly wrecked his Mercedes at a construction site. Something is clearly wrong with one of Seattle's pillars. Fortunately for Sherman, he plays for the right political team. That team is going to protect Sherman at all costs. That team is what I call the Alphabet Mafia. BLM, LGBTQIA, plus IMCA. <laughs> the Alphabet Mafia is the new Dallas Cowboys, America's team. The team every kid dreams about making. You're wondering why the NFL will play the Black National Anthem, lift every voice and sing, before every game in the opening season? It's an initiation ritual, ritual placed on the league for Alphabet Mafia membership. As the Sherman case demonstrates, membership in the mob has its privileges. You can show early signs of O.J. Simpson disease and still be stamped as a pillar in your community. An uncle of your wife can call 911 and tell the police that you threaten violence against your wife. The corporate media will pretend the call never took place. Membership has its privileges. Let's say Patriots coach Bill Belichick, friend of Donald Trump, had been accused of actions attributed to Richard Sherman. Would a judge label Belichick a pillar of the Boston community? Would the judge be skewered for giving Belichick white privilege? Yesterday it was reported the NFL will make the Black National Anthem standard procedure at its pregame festivities. It was also reported that social justice messages will return on the back of helmets and throughout the stadiums. The news surprised some sports fans. Even the super woke NBA backed away from its social justice messaging this season. Words Black Lives Matter were stripped from the basketball courts. This past NBA season felt halfway normal. The games no longer felt like ESPN's Maria Taylor was wagging a finger of blame as you watched the game. Sports fans wrongly assumed the NFL would make the same pivot to normalcy the NBA did. Nope, didn't happen. Different men have different standards to achieve maid status in the alphabet mafia. NFL has more hoops to jump through. It's a process. Third string Raiders defensive end, Carl Nassib being celebrated for coming out as gay was part of the process. The NFL social media campaign promoting the, promoting the league as gay, 
transgender, non-binary, and Winnie the Pooh was part of the process. So it was pretending that women's soccer player Carly Lloyd could kick in the NFL. And so was this Super Bowl commercial based on the fallacy that a little black girl received a football scholarship to play cornerback. Remember this? They said she was too small. They said she was too slow. Too weak. They said she'd never get to the next level. Never inspire a new generation. Never get a football scholarship. Yeah, people have made a lot of assumptions about Tony. But I've never been a big fan of assumptions. Oh, man. Tony Harris, the young lady shown in that commercial, she didn't even play on her high school team. They let her in on her high school team for like a kickoff for one play, but somehow she got a football scholarship. Embracing the Black National Anthem is part of the process for mob status for the NFL. Continuing the pagan worship of good Dr. Reverend George Floyd Luther III is part of the process. At some point, the Alphabet Mafia will demand, and the league will acquiesce, that Meghan Markle be named head coach of the Los Angeles Rams. How does the NFL so desperately want to join the Alphabet Mafia? Because they've been promised if they promote the appropriate narrative, that corporate media will quit terrorizing the league's brand with false and exaggerated accusations of racism and a lack of safety. The NFL's public relations problems regarding black head coaches and head trauma will magically disappear. Poof! All gone. The league has been bullied into submission. Poor and weak leadership of Commissioner Roger Goodell and Executive Vice President of Football Operations, Troy Vincent, has made pop culture's strongest force, the NFL, vulnerable. Football's being brought into the secret society, the fraternal satanic organizations reshaping global society. Global elites cannot socially engineer the changes they want without controlling the number one American TV show on five different television networks. That's CBS, that's Fox, that's ESPN, that's NBC, and the NFL Network. The NFL is the strongest thing going. The NFL wants to be treated like Richard Sermon. So it's gonna lift its voice and sing until China's cash registers ring. Uncle Jimmy. See what you did there. You think about my fire. I see what you did there. Lift every voice and sing till China's registers ring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Hallelujah. <laughs> Jump back, won't kiss myself. Hi! Hey! <laughs> <laughs> One time! You know what? I, I, uh, I, he might do that next. Goodell yeah. might do that at the next, at, at the next draft. Uh, for this draft, the NFL, ah, kiss myself. <laughs> if that's what's fashionable. Before we run out to LA, we're gonna bring Lavar in. My guy. You have any take on my take? Just very quickly, and then we're gonna bring our our guy in. All right, Choppy. 
Who's that? R-H-I-P. R-H-I-P. What's that? Same thing you said. Rank has its privilege. Rank has its privileges. That's what Is that what they say in the military? That's what they say, man. Yeah. It rolls downhill. And right now, the shit's rolling downhill, and Richard Sherman ain't sitting at the bottom of the hill. We right have to now. work on you and the cussing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You got a Bible story later now, in the show. Uh, and you know what? Uh, look, now, oh, oh, you, you, you can talk about your ways and say God ain't finished with you? Man, I'm still working. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know who God's working on. Let's bring him in, LeVar Arrington, or as we like to call him, Trisha's husband. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago, LeVar was known as a great football player, one of the greatest college football players of long. all time, long time ago. Second <laughs> overall pick in the NFL draft after his teammate. Uh, but now, over the last 15 years, he's just Trish's husband to most people. That's his greatest accomplishment. He outkicked his coverage. Yeah, he, he actually did. Uh, LeVar, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you. So Appreciate happy you. to have you. You're one of the few people used to coming on after a wit log and having to put out the fire. Give me your initial thoughts on uh, the wit log or the fire starter I just fired off. Well, I did miss the wit logs. I will say that and am super, super happy to have experienced one today. Uh, listen, I, I've always looked at the creativity of, of how you organize your thoughts and and connect them to um, your vision and and scope of of what's taking place and and it makes people think it makes me think and and looking at this Richard Sermon situation you know after seeing the video hearing the 911 call versus seeing the actual video footage of of how Richard Sherman was and the state he was in it, it, you know, to me, it came across as a grown man who was throwing a grown man temper tantrum. And sometimes in looking at how the behavior patterns of, of who we are as people in regards to how it plays out into the total whole of what our society represents can either be complicated or it could just be very simple. In this case, I think it's really simple. The older we get, to me, I think every day you wake up, you want to try to be a better version of yourself. That means looking at the weaknesses that you've had to overcome and endure during the course of your life and looking at the strengths and the successes that you've had, and you try to eliminate the weaknesses, get better. At the same time, you don't want to rest and live in the laurels of the success and things you've accomplished. I think that Richard Sherman, after me looking at the video, appears to me to be someone clearly who is used to getting their way. And if something irritates them, if something pulls them down a lane where they're not comfortable with it, they lash out. It appeared to me, by the way I looked at it and just my experiences in the past, he's the type of dude, Whitlock, I wouldn't want to go out with. Like if we're going to go hang, if we're going to go take a trip to Vegas or go to Miami or go wherever we're going to go, I'm not going with Richard Sherman. The reason why? He's the reason why guys like me end up getting arrested. I'm going to be the one that ends up fighting while he's the one that ended up starting it. 
Why did he start it? I don't know. Ego? Possibly. Legit reasons? Possibly. But the way he he looked, you don't know if it's legit. You don't know what the reason is. You just know that you got to defend something because that's what he's created. So basically what I'm saying is we can look at all of the ABC mafia talk. We can dig into the Whitlock real deep and say these are the reasons why we're seeing the behavior from Richard Sherman. But for me, I tend to rest on the fact that he's someone that has gotten so used to being treated the way that he's treated that he has not rectified that weakness that he should be looking at in terms of when he's in a compromised state of what he believes or what he wants or how he wants it, how he reacts and how he handles it. I think that somebody has not taught him or told him or guided him on when something happens that you're not necessarily happy about, that there's a different way to go about handling those things. And I think it's as simple as that, Whit. I, I really do. That's my take on it. I think he was having a, a temper, tantrum, uh, temper tantrum moment. All right. You've gone a slightly different direction, and, and, and I'm glad you did because we didn't really get to have this discussion yesterday when we tried to have you on. And, th- and I, so I do want to further tap into your experience as an elite athlete, as someone who was at the top of the NFL pyramid at one time, second pick in the draft, probably the most talented guy to come into that draft, franchise the Washington Redskins at that time, leaning into you. And so yesterday, I I talked about all the different pressures that are on these athletes. And even at 33, 34 years old, Richard Sherman is still young. And in in my view, as someone 20 years older than him, he's still young. I I do have a tiny bit of sympathy for Richard Sherman in terms of, I think he's been under an enormous amount of pressure for a long time. I think a lot of people think, oh my God, he's got all this money. He's got all this adulation. He's got a beautiful wife. His life must be perfect. But the reality is, LeVar, these, the money, the beautiful wife may not fix whatever hole is in any individual. And that's what I, when I looked at the video of Richard Sherman outside that door, his in-laws inside that door, I'm just like, wow, this guy's got some deep-seated issues that have been untreated. If you can reach this age and put yourself in this position. Yeah, I mean, I think it was an emotional, it was an emotional reaction. I'll give you a great example, because I don't even want to come across as a finger pointer. Um, I picked up a motorcycle, didn't have a license, hadn't rid, rid, rode a bike in years, and wasn't a expert, wasn't an expert at riding a bike. But I was searching for an adrenaline rush. I'm afraid of heights, so I'm not jumping out of no, no, airplane to get my fix. I'm not going in no air balloon. I'm not doing anything thrill seeking in terms of height, certain things. I'm not going scuba diving, snorkeling, any of those things. I chose a bike. So I was in between. I was on land. And one day I was riding that bike and I was on the highway with one of my homeboys and I wrecked. I wrecked that bike. 
and it costed me the the health of my arm. It altered my leg, um, and I almost died. When I woke up from the accident, that wife that that I'm the husband to was standing over top of me, crying and and hoping that you know I was okay. I'm thinking, okay, I didn't know what really you know transpired. Uh, because I kind of, you know, and which by the way, I didn't see no light or dark when, when all of this was taking place. So I don't know if I was in purgatory or if heaven is there or hell is there. I didn't feel no heat. (laughs) And I, so I don't know about all that, but, but I will say when I came to and was talking to, to Trish, you know, they were explaining to me, I still wasn't even out of the woods. You know, they basically told me that I had to, to you know, move the, 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 the fluids that were being pumped into me or I would go into failure, kidney failure. And and obviously that would lead to dialysis. So I was one step away. I was one foot in, in the grave, and I was one foot out of the grave. And I feel like when you have these moments, those come to Jesus moments literally are that. They're come to Jesus moments, and either you are going to address those demons or you're going to allow them to to you know reproduce and once them demons start reproducing they they they, it's like it's more rabbit like it's not it's not the nine month period of time it's quick so you get more and more and more and more and it has more influence so the longer you go not addressing who you are and the things that you need to to look at to become a better person, those things will ultimately continue to, you know, define your identity, so to speak. And I think that we saw that play out on camera. That's not the first time he's 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 reacted that way. No way, no how. I'll put everything on that. It's not the first. In fact, it could be his pattern of how he handles stress, fatigue, anxiety, pressure. That's his way. And it just went so far as to where a 911 call took place and now it becomes a national spectacle. So to me, Richard Sherman should now, if he hasn't already, this should be his come to Jesus moment. You cannot handle your stress and your pressure and your shortcomings and whatever, your discomfort. You can't handle it that way. You put the spotlight on yourself by being a super, super awesome football player, a, an intelligent, super dope athlete that played football, possibly a Hall of Famer. I think he had a Hall of Fame career, but so did Darren Sharper. You know what I mean? You can't mess up what you've mm. created and what you've built by the actions that take place off of the field. So to me, this is one of those, it didn't quite get you moments but if you don't address what you've done, it could catch up to you eventually, and the outcome could be very, very dramatically different with. All right, before we go back, because I do want to ask you about the national anthem thing, but I want to stay in this space where, where you've led us and led me and, and, and just talk personally about a little bit about our relationship and what has impressed me about you. I think a lot of athletes, particularly in this era, in the last 20 years, when there's been so much money to be made, so much fame to be had, even more than previous generations, you're one of the few athletes I've met that has a great deal of self-awareness that wants to continue on the journey of evolution. 
instead of like, I made it. I'm a millionaire. I'm a celebrity. There's no place else for me to go. You are one of the few people that I've known is like, no, 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 there's higher levels for me to go. And that, because <laughs> initially when, we, when you moved out to LA and we started working together again, because you know I used to come on your radio show out in DC, I challenged you a couple of times. I was like, hey man, there's a higher level of TV and work to be done. And what shocked me was the way that you handled that and accepted that challenge. Why are you built that way? Is it Trish? Is it what your parents put in you? Is it just, I don't know. What, why are you seem to be somewhat different than the typical athlete? You know, I don't, I don't necessarily even look at it as being, if I'm the typical athlete or if I'm atypical, I've always looked at it as I want to be a person that can be an example to others. That's really what I root my identity in. I come from a hard place. One of the reasons I, somebody asked me the other week, why do I, why am I so committed to, to being around the young people and teaching, coaching and mentoring? And I always told them my favorite cousin was murder. He was a crip, spent most of his life in jail um, I bought lawnmowers. I bought him a car. I helped him get jobs. I did everything I could possibly do to try to save him. And I couldn't. And it was black on black crime. It was not police brutality. It was not any others. It wasn't natural causes. He was shot to death in his back. And and I've always, in my mind, I've always wanted to be more so that my legacy wasn't just based on being able to be an example to the next generation of of our our young people uh aspire to be much more than just someone who uh labels you a number or or a logo on a helmet Uh, i always wanted to be someone who who represented change and 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 just like this conversation about richard sherman i believe and have believed that he's been that same type of person the intelligence, the IQ level of him emotionally and mentally has been something that we've come to reverence during the course of his career. So in looking at a situation like this, where you see that vulnerability of who he is as a person in that moment, I would hope that that like myself, after that motorcycle accident, or even the the death of my cousin, I would hope that Richard Sherman takes a very, very deep dive introspectively on what he could have done differently, how he can be different, because he is a force of change. That force of change could be used for good or it could be wasted and be something for bad. So when I, you know, when I came out here and started interacting with you, it took my thought process to a whole nother place. I thought on a different level. I challenged myself on a different level because at first I thought you were bat s crazy when I first started to get to know you. But then once I started <laughs> understanding where you were coming from in your thought process, it started to make a whole lot of sense. And I didn't have to agree with everything you said, but it made sense to be able to challenge yourself to see things from multiple angles, different perspectives, and, and really let your actions do the talking for you. So if my actions were that of what we saw Richard Sherman's actions on that video were, then I have to live with the, the, the whatever the results are, consequences, repercussions, whatever they are for my actions. 
And so that's what drives me is my actions. I want to be proud of my actions when I talk to young people, when I mentor, when I guide, when I have conversations with you. I want to have I want to have the pride and 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 the feeling of, you know, I'm working to be the best me that I possibly can be. And that's through the challenges of being able to interpret what it is that I hear, what I read, what I see. And being able to internalize it in a way where I can communicate it to the masses of people in a simple enough way where they can take something from it that is productive and leads towards a purpose. Because if there's not an identity and a purpose connected to what it is that you're doing, then you're wasting your time and you're doing yourself a disservice. And if you're you're actually using that for someone else, you're doing those people a disservice because it's not the genuine you. So that's kind of what drives me, Whit. I'm going to end on this note. I'm going to ask you about the NFL and the Black National Anthem. Before I get to that question, though, I do want to say the kind of stuff LeVar is saying, he and TJ Hushmanzada and Plaxico Burris have a show called Up One Game. I think it's one of the best radio shows and podcasts out there if you want to learn about sports being a high-level athlete, how to handle all of the game. It's They're trying to educate you on how to handle things on and off the field at a high level. They do a marvelous job of getting other athletes to talk about and reveal things they wouldn't in other settings. It's a terrific show. I like how serious and professional they are. It's been, you know, I just love what you're doing, LeVar, and I appreciate it. Before you get out of here, give me your fi- – the, na- the Black National Anthem being made a part of the NFL. Thumbs up, thumbs down from LeVar Arrington. Oh, man. It's a, it's a complicated one. Uh, again, I think I would say initially I'd say thumbs down. And the reason why I would say thumbs down is because I hate living in a qualified environment. Don't qualify me. You know, and and, and so for me... When I think of everything that has happened, and I live in L.A. now, so I I don't just live in Pittsburgh. I live in L.A. When I lived in Pittsburgh, it was very black and white. There were no you didn't see any other races of, of people too much in Pittsburgh. But since living in different places around the country and seeing getting the exposure of living around the world, for me, if, if you're going to play one anthem that represents one racial group, then you should play all of them for, you know, for Polynesian families, for Mexican families, for Middle Eastern families, for Asian families. Um, I think that it should be something that encompasses all the races that are represented, because to me, the qualifier here is we're trying to make sure that one race of people feels good about who they are. While in some cases, in some regard, if you really take a step back and think about it, it begins to alienate other races of people and they're not even white. And so to me, is that what we is that what we really want to represent? Because to me, as a black man, I want to represent what a black man represents, which is ultimately, hopefully what every other black man and other person wants to represent as well, which is having a unified front. Because at the end of the day, I look at myself as an American. Like, I always call myself the all-American. I'm an all-American, Whit. 
So that national anthem, although some will argue and, and have their, their theories and concepts as to why that's not our national anthem, I'm American. That's been earned by my ancestors. When they were doing things in the field and we were, were not recognized as 100% human beings, as peoples with, with rights, they paid that cost. They paid that price. I'm going to walk in that with dignity and pride, and I'm going to be upright, and I'm going to be a unifying force. So I want to connect with people on a unifying front. It doesn't have to be based off of a race in specific. It's based off of people. And as long as I look at it from that scope and that that lens to implement the Black National Anthem to pregames at this point, to me, that's a contradiction of what a contradiction of my identity and my belief system, because I don't want to alienate myself for the simple sake or the simple fact that people can say black people are important. To me, I want us to be important, us meaning whoever it is that lives right. Right has no color. Neither does wrong. So to me, I want to live within the right. I don't I don't necessarily need to be qualified, you know, because of what's going on with with the injustices and the social systems and the merits of who's making decisions and who's the president and who's all that stuff. That doesn't matter to me because ain't none of them paying my bills with. What matters to me is that I can get up, I can make a, a life for myself and my family, and I'm creating a world where my kids don't have to be nervous about the people they're around, even if they're not the same color that they are. It's an idea of just loving one another. How about let's have a, a national anthem before every game that's all about love? Because if we can do that, you know, all we need is love. All we need is love, love. <laughs> That's all we need. That's all I need, Wit. I don't need a qualifier. <laughs> that was Mr. Trish Arrington. Uh, and we appreciate yeah. Trish yeah. allowing you to come on this show. Lavar's a kept man. If you ever go to his IG page, oh, yeah. he's always cooking, always got an apron oh, yeah. on. What's his name? Lavar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lavar. Appreciate Thanks, it, love, bro. Appreciate it. Tell Trish and the kids hello. All right, I want to tell you guys about Built Bar. I keep my ear to the ground for a lot of things. Good food is one of them. Good healthy food is at the top of my list. And thank God I found Built Bar. They keep some around in the office for me because Uncle Jimmy and Corey like to bring in all these terrible, to get unhealthy snacks. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> so they want to feed me paydays and M&Ms and all this other stuff. Thank God Built Bars here. I can eat something that tastes incredibly good that's also healthy and doesn't spike my sugar and all that other stuff that comes along with the trash that Uncle Jimmy uh, likes to bring in here the the scraps he feeds his kids. He <laughs> likes to <laughs> whatever they don't eat. He likes to bring in here and make me. Thank God for Built Bar. I got that grasshopper cookie the other day. <laughs> Outstanding. Hopping around the studio. There you go. All right, but listen, you can go to builtbuilt.com and use the promo code Fearless and save fifteen percent off your first order. Use promo code Fearless. For 15% at 
www.thebrandnewsnetwork.com. Welcome back. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Great to have you. LeVar Arrington just did an outstanding job. We'll roll out to Washington, D.C. and bring out Fearless contributor, star of the show, Delano Squires. Delano has written another uh, fantastic column. He's actually written two fantastic columns since his last appearance. We'll start with my favorite one. <laughs> Uncle Jimmy, I don't know if you've read this, but uh, oh, yeah. Delano has written a column bringing Tyler Perry, Colin Kaepernick, BLM, and the 80-20 rule in to explain how America can be saved from communism. Oprah's best friend, Tyler Perry, you got a big uh, movie mogul that makes all the, uh, all the movies, movies that I kind of- Movies with black actors wearing bad wigs. <laughs> that, that's what he's known for. Well, he's also, the, they kind of take a woman's point of view. I think his movies do. They're not the greatest for black men. Uh, but he had one, you know, why did I get married? And Delano's turned it into a column about why did America go Marxist? It's absolutely terrific. I'm going to let Delano explain uh, what his column is about, and, and then I, w- I want to talk about it. Delano, could explain the analogy. It's a brilliant analogy about Tyler Perry, how he could save America. Mm. <laughs> um, thanks, guys. So my, my thought was to, to tie some of the, um, the protests that we see, see going on in Cuba and, and to really juxtapose um, the Cubans who look at the American flag as a, as a symbol of freedom to Colin Kaepernick, BLM, and a lot of the cultural elites um, in and outside of sports who look at the flag as a, as a symbol of oppression. And as I said in the column, they, they seem to think that USA stands for you know, United States, utopian states of America. And for them, anything less than perfection is proof that the country is in, inherently and endemically and systemically um, racist and oppressive and sexist and homophobic and transphobic and Islamophobic and xenophobic. And I th- the sense that I get is that their quest for the perfect country will eventually leave them um, even more, you know, embittered, um, even even more isolated, unhappy, um, and unable to really appreciate the good things that, that this country uh, does stand for and does provide. And you took Tyler Perry's movie about why did I get married, and, and Tyler has basically a rule on that that like, look, 80% of your marriage is satisfying, don't be a fool, chasing that other 20% because you're going to end up losing that 80% and, right. and then you're going to get that 20% that's not going to provide you the 80% and you're not going to be satisfied. I thought it was a perfect analogy of, of what's going on here in America, particularly for African Americans. We're being told that unless America is perfect, we have to throw away everything and totally restructure America for us to experience any freedom or happiness here. And I just completely reject that. Yeah, as do I. And honestly, it just, it just doesn't make sense on its face, right? These are people who, who claim, uh, particularly in the last administration, that we were living under 
um, you know, a, a, a fascist president and, and uh, fascist authoritarian government, but they hold up um, the USSR, they hold up, uh, you know, communist China, they hold up, particularly Cuba um, seems to be one of their favorites. And I always ask myself, I mean, who are you know Fidel Castro's main political rivals? You know where where do you have the most chance of surviving if you engage in open, consistent public criticism of your country's president in Cuba or in the United States of America? And if they want to make the argument that they could be on Cuban national TV and and calling you know uh, you know Fidel Castro or or the current president um, a bad leader, an oppressive leader, a person who um, represses its own population, and if they if they want to make the argument that they could do that publicly in Cuba, and and still go home and sleep in their bed at night, then I'm I'm more than willing to to listen to it. So you have people who say that they're all about protesting for equality and freedom and and all these rights, but they lionize um, regimes in which many of those rights don't even exist. So it's 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 a strange. It's a strange, strange phenomenon. They they pine for the idea of socialism and equality, um, and then again, you see the people who live in those actual countries and those under those regimes, and and they thirst for the freedom that that Americans have today. What's so funny about this is, uh, for me as a sports fan, I can remember when Colin Kaepernick taking a knee early on, and it was so polarizing and controversial. And then he showed up at a press conference, I think when mm. the 49ers were actually playing the Miami Dolphins. Mm -hmm. And the Dolphins, obviously Miami has a large Cuban population that many people that fled communist Cuba and mm -hmm. Fidel Castro, he shows up in a t-shirt. Uh, that's celebrating Fidel Castro. He defends Cuba. And, and it's like, I, in, Miami's just the wrong place and the wrong group of people to remotely go there with that message because, again, we've seen plenty of instances of them taking little boats to get, escape uh, Cuba to get over here. We never see any boats flowing the other direction <laughs> to Cuba. This is so common sense. I've not, I have not seen one black American say, man, let me get on a boat over to Cuba. <laughs> I've never seen it. No you way. couldn't, at, at gunpoint, you couldn't get Colin Kaepernick to leave here. You couldn't get LeBron James to leave here. As much as he loves China, he's not gonna do it. I just, that, that's, Delano, that's what I love so much about your writing is you, you, you present these arguments in a very relatable way. I, I hope that a lot of black people take the time to read it and enjoy it and try to experience or understand the point that Delano's trying to make. The, the Tyler Perry reference and the movie reference just makes it very accessible. Do you think at some point we're going to realize that, or, or do we already realize that there's nothing better than America and this whole thing is the demonization of America is really just a hustle that people are doing for political power on their jobs and the Democratic Party's using for political power across the country? 
Yeah, a, a couple of things. Um, going back to, to Kaepernick and his T-shirt, and I, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, the T-shirt had um, Fidel Castro and Malcolm X on, it was on the shirt, and his thing about Castro was that, well, look, Cuba has one of the highest literacy rates in, in you know, in, in the Western Hemisphere. And, and again, that's that's great, and I, I wouldn't even dispute that that's the case, but um, you you may have an entire population that can read and write, and, that's, and as I said, that's great. But if you're Colin Kaepernick, there's no way that you can live in Cuba and, and own, you know, your four Lamborghinis and and your six houses, um, because that type of thing is is not going to be allowed in a society that doesn't, um, you know, promote the the ownership of private property. Now I will say this, and I may I'm, I'm gonna disagree with you a little bit. A lot of celebrities and elites love Cuba, but when they go, they go to the hotels, they go to the cigar making factories, they go for the the nostalgia of of Havana in the 1950s. They wear the nice hats and the and the shirts with you know the second button unbuttoned. Um, th- they are going to experience a particular period in time, um, and when you have when you don't have innovation in your economy. Um, and you have cars that are from the 1960s, you have to sell it as nostalgia. Um, but to your point, they would never move there, and they certainly wouldn't move there and live in the conditions of, of you know, the average person who lives there. Um, and as you said, you can, w- <laughs> the, 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 the thing that gets me, and you're right, I, I try to bring out some of these themes and make them crystal clear to people, because a lot of times this is what happens is that people across the political spectrum, across races and ethnicities and religions, um, we, we tend to react very viscerally to the things that we hear and we see. We ask ourselves, okay, who said it? Are they on my side? Do I trust them? Here is the reaction I should have. Uh, I try to encourage people to, to look a little bit deeper and just ask yourself some simple questions. Now, uh, across the globe, when people feel oppressed by their government, uh, when they feel targeted uh, based on their ethnicity or their religion, what you see them do, or when they feel that they want to look for greater economic opportunity, they leave. They leave their country of origin. They leave their family behind, and they take the risk of going to a land that they don't know, and oftentimes with with people that um, they're not connected to and with a language that they don't speak, all because they think that what they have where they are is not as good as what they could have where they want to be. On the flip side, um, if you think that the place that you live is a terrible place and it hates people of color, um, you certainly wouldn't want to invite more people of color here. Nobody takes that approach to anything else. If you had a school that treated your children poorly and, and you had a, a friend or a cousin that said they want to enroll their kid in that school, you would never say, yeah, that's a good choice. You would say, no, stay away from that place. But what you see in, in, in terms of our elites, our cultural elites, is the complete opposite of what you would expect to see. They complain about how bad and oppressive this country is, but they'll never leave. And they invite people who they say are hated here to come here in larger and larger numbers. So all of this is just rhetoric. Um, It's political rhetoric. They're using it for uh, a political purpose. And as you said, they, most of them have no intention of of ever leaving because they realize as much as they hate capital, claim to hate capitalism and promote socialism, they know that even the uh, the the dismissal and the criticism of capitalism is in and of itself a market here in the U.S. that they can make money off of. So that's how you end up with leaders of BLM 
you know, breaking in big deals from uh, Warner Brothers, being able to purchase millions of dollars uh, worth of real estate. That's how you have Colin Kaepernick uh, painting himself as a freedom fighter while getting a nice check from Nike in the back pocket. Um, So even the hatred of capitalism is in and of itself a market in the United States that they are uh, very adept at taking advantage of. All right, let's move to your other column that I also enjoyed. Uh, where you really put a lot of the elite activist athletes on the spot, from Megan Rapinoe to LeBron James to Serena Williams. You asked the question in this column, how come these activist athletes aren't speaking out and defending women's athletes who are, whose sports are being invaded by transgenders Please expound on your column and and why you're asking this question. Sure. Um, I'm asking it really because, uh, as you you mentioned, um, a lot of these people, again, LeBron James, uh, Megan Rapinoe, um, Serena Williams, Colin Kaepernick, even some of the the sports journalists, you know, the the Jamel Hills of the world, um, they're constantly talking and lecturing about using their platform for social good, to promote equality, to promote fairness. Um, But when it comes to uh, the girls and women across the country from high school on up um, in college and professional sports and the Olympics, who see more and more um, that their sports are being, in some cases, dominated by people who say that they are uh, girls and women, right? They, they say that they are transgender girls and women, but which really means that they're, they're, they're male. Um, they're biologically male. Um, these girls are, are using their voice to say that this is not fair. It's not fair that a 16-year-old male who's already gone through puberty and has the advantages that that, um, that change confers on, on someone in terms of uh, denser bone structure, higher aerobic capacity, uh, muscle mass, um, strength, power, speed, that that, that 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 person can compete against me. Um, and at, at the elite levels, those differences actually matter, right? If you took an elite sprinter, uh, female sprinter, and, and a, an Olympian level female sprinter, and you had her race against the average Joe, Joe Schmo, it wouldn't be a problem. She'd smoke him 100 times out of 100. But for instance, uh, the fastest 100 meter time for, for uh, women is still uh, Florence Griffith Joyner, which was in 1988, 88, I, I wanna say it's a 10.49, and that record has stood for over 30 years. That, that time is not even in the top 6,000 times for, for men. Um, and in fact, a number of high school students have beat that time. And I don't say that to, to diminish Flojo or female athletes. I say that to make the point that there are real biological differences between men and women that, you know, that can't be bridged just because someone says that they feel a particular way or they think that they're a particular way. Um, and, and, I, and I find it hypocritical that, again, both the athletes and um, the corporate media institutions. I mentioned USA Today, I mentioned ESPN. Um, many of them will not touch this issue with a 10-foot pole. Now, they will opine on things that have nothing to do with sports. 
police shootings. They, they will talk about Karen incidents. But when it actually has to do with sports, uh, I'm thinking of the WNBA, for instance, right? There's no amount of uh, hormone therapy that LeBron James could take that would erase his physical advantage if, if he wanted, for whatever reason, to move into the WNBA. And the effect is, and this is to, to I guess, bar another um, you know, cultural reference, they want to turn Joanna Man, which was a film from the early 2000s, from a comedy into a documentary. And I think uh, it takes people with actual courage, not, again, not, not weather vane activists who just are measuring which way the wind is blowing, but people with actual courage to stand up and say, no, this is, this is not right, it's not fair. And, and doing that is gonna come uh, with a significant risk, particularly, particularly with, to athletes who have a public profile. How did we get here because I've given this a lot of thought, and I don't, I, I, I can't, I haven't been able to figure it out. Maybe you can. That feelings are driving our decision making in terms of like, oh, I feel like I'm a woman or I'm a man, and so let's change all the rules of society to match your feelings, mm. and. We see this all over, not just as it relates to gender. I feel offended. So there must be repercussions. You've made me feel a certain way. And so there must be repercussions. We must cancel you because you've made someone feel a certain way. There was a time when we were fighting actual laws and actions. Again, when you when there were rules that forbid you from entering a school that your taxes help pay for, that's not mm. a feeling. That's not, oh, I didn't feel like I couldn't go to that school. You actually couldn't. You didn't feel like you couldn't drink out of that water fountain. There were laws forbidding you from doing it. You didn't feel like, oh, I got to sit in the back of the bus. You actually had to do it, and we were fighting actions. Slavery was an action. It wasn't a feeling. Right. How did we get here that feelings are the most important thing in America and we have to make sure that no one's feelings are ever violated? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I could answer it on a couple different levels, right? Um, the examples you gave about the, the, the issues that um, we had to address and overcome, um, particularly you know er earlier in, in our country's history and up through the civil rights era, um, issues that, that were actually systemic in nature, right? There were actually laws in the books that said um, black folk couldn't do certain things. Um, at that time, we, we needed Judge Judy, right? We needed to get laws overturned, we needed a better policy and so on and so forth. But now this society needs Dr. Phil. And the problem is, at a certain point, people stop caring about your feelings. They have other things to do, they have families to raise, they have their own problems to deal with, and the, the tolerance for other people's feelings, particularly as they become more and more ridiculous, to be quite frank, um, and as society gets softer and softer and more fragile, including men, by the way, um, the, the tolerance for taking on other people's emotional and mental burdens as your own is just gonna get lower and lower and lower. Um, and that's, that's, that, that's where we find ourselves uh, today. 
our society is not, um, our, our, our people, the citizenry is not built the way it used to be. Uh, when the aggressions 50 years ago were, were very macro, everyone could see them. But now, if you know someone who's new to your office happens to call you by the wrong name or mispronounce your name or misspell your name, now that's a that's an issue that has to go to HR and there has to be reconciliation and and this, as I said, our society is just getting soft. Um, so that's I say I would say that's on a cultural level, but on on a deeper level, particularly on a more spiritual level, our society and much of the West, I, I would say, has been completely unhitched from the notion of absolute truth. Um, and as a Christian, I, I base my absolute truth in in the unchanging eternal um, truth of, of God's word found found in, in, in the scriptures. Um, so those are truths that I can anchor into. And even if someone doesn't agree with them, they'll know what I'm anchored into. But, but once you pull up the anchor, um, once you pull up everything that keeps you tethered to a particular place, you'll just drift and you'll just get pushed to and fro. And typically it's by whatever society thinks is uh, normal at a particular point. And I think I think we're seeing that in in our society, and and it's really, it, um, it's really based on whatever the majority says. So so we'll go back to the issue we're talking about, right? For some reason, and and I'll, I'll use a, a couple, I'll use a reference that a lot of people may know. Um, I remember when the the woman named Rachel Dolezal came out and said that she was black. She had been the head of the NAACP, I wanna say it was in Seattle, for a number of years. She, she taught at, I believe she taught at the HBCU. She convinced everyone she was a light-skinned black woman. But came to find out she was a white woman. And, and, but she said she felt black. And she was ridiculed for the most part. Um, and you've actually seen a number of people um, sort of take on this same thing where they pose as black you know, for a particular reason and a particular period of time. Now we laugh at her. And we say she's being ridiculous. But if she came out tomorrow and said that she's Richard Dolezal, then we would all say, oh, I affirm you. I, I believe that you know it's possible to change your um, gender, but not your race. So we take something which actually is a social construct, which is quite fluid in terms of what we call race. A person who may identify as black today or be identified as black today, um, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, in a different region would have been called Creole or mixed or octoroon or quadroon, whatever it is. And we take what is fluid and we make it fixed. And we take what was fixed, which is sex, gender. A woman today would be a woman 70 years ago, 175 years ago, 2000 years ago. And we make it totally fluid. Um, and our elites have told us that that's normal. And as I said the other, last time I was on, a lot of this is being driven by, you know, college campuses and people who claim to be enlightened, right? These these are the people who who mock conservatives because they say, oh, um, conservatives don't believe in science, and and my response is, I'm not about to be lectured on science from people who think that there are no differences between male and female, all right? Bill Nye in in the 1990s said, Bill Nye the science guy said. There are only two sexes, male and female, XX and XY. By the time the, the 2010s kicked, came around, he was saying gender is on a spectrum. He never defined what that spectrum was, by the way. He just said it was on a spectrum. He just repeated it. So a lot of it, as I said, is being pushed by elites. It has a, 
uh, a destabilizing effect. Um, and the penalties for going against that are becoming greater and greater. And that's why you see more and more people just willing to put their heads down. They don't believe this stuff in their private life, right? But publicly, they'll say it, you know, they'll, they'll go along to get along because the, the cost of, of rebelling against, you know, prevailing orthodoxy is just way too high. I'm gonna stick with movie analogies to explain okay. what I think is driving all of this or driving a significant part of it. The media needs the content. Again, mm. we have, TV is built around conflict and disagreement. And you look at the way the media pretended like it hated Donald Trump, but really made money off Donald Trump, relevance, traction, ratings off Donald Trump. And so I look at everything that's going on and go, the Truman Show, that Jim Carrey movie mm. that we're all just living in or waiting to be cast in the, the next Truman Show. And transgenderism and that whole deal is just part of the Truman Show. It's just more content for us to argue and debate about. It, does, it doesn't have to be remotely connected to truth. As long as it produces ratings driving content and taps into someone's emotion. Because again, there, there, are, there are people that, that pretend, I'm, I'm gonna, I hope this works what I'm about to say. Because I'm not talking about transgenderism, but I'm just talking about this Truman Show that we're living in. Look what just happened to Stephen A. Smith earlier this week. He made a very non-controversial comment, a comment that has been said many, many times by people over the past 20, 30 years. As more foreign athletes have come into American sports, people have said, hey, man, if you could speak English... It would help your marketability and you could be mm -hmm. the face of the league and you not speaking English uh, is 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 hurting your popularity and hurts the league. Th that's that's not a controversial statement. It's nothing he needed to apologize for. It was just an opinion. People can agree or disagree with it. But this is how I know it's all phony and just B.S. Because I came on this show and said, hey, you know what, I agree with Stephen A. Smith. And I put together a whole argument about why I agree with Stephen A. Smith and why I was, no one's pretending to be offended by what I said. Mm -hmm. Because there's no traction ratings in that. So it's like, well, no, there's no group. No, and again, I've said things that I cop to. I've said things that were offensive to Asian people in the whole Jeremy Lin situation and Lin Sanity years ago. I actually said something that was offensive and Asian people rebuked me. In this case, agreeing with Stephen A. Smith because there's no ratings and oh my, oh my God, we, Whitlock's bosses won't pretend to be upset the way ESPN bosses will play along with us. This is all just a scam, it's just all this emotions and feelings and, and just pandering to that, it's all just for television ratings, social media traction. It's all bullshit. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, Excuse me. Can I say that? We're even. 
I, I think I think um, I think part of it is driven by you know a genuine desire for people to be seen as good people, to be seen as progressive people, as welcoming, loving people, affirming people, um, and particularly in the African American community, to be seen as champions of social justice, um, even when it's, it's not tied to race. So in many respects, there are people who have different agendas who will try to use um, the, the, the struggle for freedom and rights that black folk have been, that fought you know, from, from you know, the first time that we stepped on these shores. They try to use that struggle against us and say, hey, you all fought for freedom. You all have been fighting for equality. How dare you turn around and block us in our fight for equality? And that guilt works. That guilt trip works for a lot of people. And in many respects, there's there's a strain of black guilt um, that parallels the strain of of white guilt. Um, you know, in, in in terms of you know, particularly among among white liberals. But as I said, it, it's for me the issue is not to attack transgender athletes, right? I, I actually um, feel a, a, you know compassion and and empathy for people who really feel like their, their, their body and their mind is at war. But what I'm not going to do, um, and I don't think people should do, is affirm people in something that's simply not true. And particularly if you say that you believe in science. So again, whether you take this position based on genesis or genetics, to me, affirming people in a lie is not, is not either for their benefit um, now, it may be for yours because you get to, to, to pass yourself off as a good and kind person, but it's certainly not um, in their benefit. So, th- so that's why for me, the, the issue is not even the transgender athletes themselves. The, the issue for me is the people who are pushing this particular agenda. Um, and they, they say they're for women. And, 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 and l- let me use this example because I, I, f- I feel like there's a parallel here. I think there's a real parallel between... Um, the, the plight of women and girls as it relates to this issue and the plight of um, black people, particularly the ones that live in some of our largest cities that, that tend to be run by Democrats. And here's the parallel. Um, both of those groups, both the elected officials in those cities, corporate media, activist athletes, sports leagues say, hey, we're with you as long as you have the right enemy. If your enemy is, you know, straight white males, we got your back. But if your enemy is, your enemy, quote unquote, is another press group, sorry, you're on your own. And, and I think you see that from, as I said, these elected officials all the way down to ESPN. ESPN will have a round table on every issue, things that have nothing to do with sports. But when it comes to something like this, they will never run a sympathetic profile on a, on a female athlete who feels that she's lost out on scholarships um, and other opportunities because she's been forced to compete with a biological male. They just, they won't do it. So they, they're not engaged in activism at this point. It's all advocacy and anyone who's looking at it honestly can see that. Um, so I, I, I think that the women and girls who, who uh, have been told that these institutions are for them and they're for girl power, I think, I think they should uh, reevaluate whether or not that's true. Delano, thank you. Excellent job as always. Always. Thank you, guys. Jimbo. I love that dude, man. He's awesome.
I love that dude. Yeah, he's I all. Was... He's not as good as me, Jim. Admit that. Admit that too. He's not as good as me. Come on, man. I'm got God. Got God. God's working on me, man. I, I, I can't, <laughs> man. I, I can't tell. Let me. Lie. Let me. I want to throw you something. Yes, sir. This is going back to the beginning of uh, Delano's conversation. The eighty twenty rule from. Tyler Perry's movie, Why Did I Get Married? Did you see that movie? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 80-20. I didn't want to say this to Lano, but, you know, I offer women a 40-60 proposition. I'm going to satisfy 40% of their needs. And if that's not good enough, to hell with you. That's been my problem my whole life. 40, I offer 40-60. Tyler Perry says you need to offer 80-20. I offer 40-60. You're going to be 60% dissatisfied with our relationship while I'm 100% satisfied. And I, I could agree with you. I could understand your thinking in that. And with that, I can understand why you're also still single. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Truly. My 40% effort... I'm not, I'm not condoning, I'm not condoning you, Jason, effort. honestly, because right. with that mentality and what yeah. you're doing, bro, you'll, you'll never find yourself in child support court. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. Well, I'm not sure about child support. Child support. That could happen. <laughs> but anyway, hey, go to YouTube.com slash Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe and notifications button. Come join the fearless army. All right, when we come back, Rav Aurora from the New York Post is going to help us talk about all the chaos in Minneapolis since they started defend, defunding the police. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. We're going to roll out to Canada, actually, and be joined by Rav Aurora from the New York Post. Rav has written some interesting articles for the New York Post. The most interesting one I've found so far examines Minneapolis and what has happened there in the aftermath of the defund the police movement in Minneapolis. And that's the way to fix the George Floyd uh, tragedy or whatever is to defund the police. And Rav wrote an interesting story about how a man, a citizen there named Don Samuels, actually fought, filed a lawsuit to force the city of Minneapolis to live up to what it agreed to in terms of policing and the number of police because things have gotten so bad in Minneapolis, violent crime has spiked. And, and Rav relays a story from a woman in, in Minneapolis who called 911, Jim. She's seen someone, uh, people trying to steal her car okay. as she's unloading groceries. The 911 dispatcher tells her, hey, we don't have anybody to, to handle that. Is it insured? You're kind of on your own. Yeah, you're on your own. That's what's going on in some of these major cities. Anyway, Rav, welcome to Fearless. Hey, Jason. Good Tell to be me here. what you discovered in Minneapolis and the story of Don Samuels. Yeah. So what I learned is that when essentially when the police leave, lawlessness prevails. And that's exactly what the story of Minneapolis is. 
the story is of of uh, this kind of uh, left-wing progressive utopianism, this uh, idea that if if we get rid of the police, then that would reduce police killings, it would reduce racism and injustice. But what's really happened is more injustice has happened now that the police are gone, which in the aftermath of, of George Floyd, the city council vowed to dismantle the police. They, they said they would defund them or just get rid of them altogether. And then one of the police precincts burned down. There were riots happening, widespread protests, widespread anti-police sentiment. And after that, more than 200 police officers left, uh, a lot of them from PTSD. And they, they did so because they, they felt demoralized. They felt they were they couldn't do their jobs they were they were damned if they did damned if they didn't you know if if they did their jobs then uh, if they made a mistake or even if they did the right thing and they're they happen to be white and the individual on the other side of the situation is black then and even if it was the right decision to shoot or to apprehend or do something else they would be punished because of this this grand media narrative that says that that any any circumstance involving a white officer and a black suspect that leads to uh, violence that escalates it is the fault of the officer. That's that seems to be the default position in the media among politicians. Oftentimes, the details don't matter. We've seen this with Jacob Blake. We've seen this with uh, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta last year. He was trying to. T- take the officer's uh, taser and pointed it at him and, and fired it towards him. And the officer decided to shoot. And right away, the uh, Atlanta City Council, they, they fired the officer. And uh, we see this happening again and again with the uh, Micaiah Bryant shooting, most uh, recently in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Micaiah Bryant, the young black teenager, was about to plunge her knife into, the, uh, into this other girl's uh, upper body and then the officer decided to shoot which was a re- really a heroic act it was and uh, it was a, a very difficult decision to make but it was ultimately the right one there's widespread agreement among law enforcement officers and basically anybody who's reasonable but the immediate narrative was that this was due to racism you had msnbc panels and cnn panels talking about how how unjust it was and how it shows racism so we have this this overarching narrative that there is widespread police racism in police shootings, etc. And so cops, they feel demoralized. They feel, you know, this, the slogan of uh, all cops are bad, that all cops are, are held responsible for the, the wrong actions of a few, uh, you know, including Derek Chauvin and, and a few other select cases. And so in Minneapolis, more than 200 officers left and the city council activists, many uh, progressive politicians who wanted to dismantle the police, including uh, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, all these people, they cheered because this was, this was progress uh, headed in the, in the direction of, of uh, racial justice. But what happened was that lawlessness prevail, prevailed. Homicide spiked, violent crime spiked, carjackings, robberies. And last year was the second most deadly year in Minneapolis's uh, history. And right now, homicides are up another 30%. If you compare over the past two years, which is a much more accurate comparison, then homicides are up something like 80, 90, 100%.
and the the victims of uh, this increase in violence aren't you know white progressives going to harvard or who are on twitter all the time these are people <laughs> in low income communities who who need the police who rely on the uh, who rely on the police as a kind of life-saving force in their community they want the police and you saw this in the polls in the aftermath of george floyd you saw greater support for defunding the police among white minneapolis residents and and lower support in black minneapolis uh, residents and and so it's no surprise now that you have predominantly black residents in minneapolis who are calling the police who are complaining about the the nightly gang violence that has that has besieged their communities who are now complaining that there are no police to be found and so uh, I interviewed Don Samuels, who was the lead plaintiff in this lawsuit. They they sued the city for lack of police protection. And on July 1st, the judge ruled in their favor. And the judge has ordered the city to hire more police officers to uh, at least increase by about 80 more officers, even though they're down by more than 200 and uh, the the effects of this of this ruling, which I think this ruling should be a national story, but I seem to be the only one who has covered it. Unfortunately, not not to say that I'm some kind of journalistic hero here. I just did. I just interviewed somebody and, and wrote up a piece on this. I feel like this isn't very hard. This should be happening in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in in the Atlantic, and other outlets. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest for the story, and I think a lot of that is due to political correctness, a kind of anti-police sentiment, and and this resistance to this narrative that we need the police, that police are the good guys, because that's what this story illustrates. And it goes completely against the progressive consensus. Rav, I, I think that there has to be a bigger agenda than just, hey, we don't like the police. I, I think that corporate media, politicians on the left, they want to destabilize major cities and create this atmosphere of lawlessness because I think they want these cities to collapse on top of, top of themselves that, that, because that's the only logical conclusion or the lo- logical ending of how this all ends. If there is no police, there will be massive chaos. And it's like, to me, it's like they're writing the script to the movie The Purge. Mm. And this is intentional. Right, yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that the that left-wing individuals want, uh, particularly, they, they don't want crime to increase. What they want is a reduction in, in police racism or police shootings uh, or you know, wrongful police shootings, which is a position that you have, that I have. We, we don't want bad cops. We don't want there to be more Laquan McDonald's or George Floyd's or a handful of other cases. We don't want that. But the, the solution to that problem isn't to get rid of the police. It isn't to defund the police. It isn't to dismantle law enforcement. These ideas are are it's completely the, the wrong approach. What you want is to, in fact, better fund the police um, train them better in, in de-escalation techniques, in gun training techniques, um, 
give them the the ability to, to yeah i mean to train better is definitely one part of it and to to give them the resources right now especially during this this crime wave this homicide wave which is not just happening in in minneapolis where where i reported it's it's happening in atlanta in chicago in milwaukee in st louis in philadelphia as well especially philadelphia is going through a, a devastating homicide wave right now which which is uh, very alarming and and so the solution isn't to get rid of the police it's to improve the police it's to give them more resources so they can better and more effectively fight crime and fight homicides and and also you know there's certainly room for some reform there are ideas about scaling back qualified immunity so we can better root out bad cops and, and and punish them when it's necessary it's very hard to to uh to, to punish and fire cops who who engage in wrongful or uh, excessive use and that kind of thing so there's certainly room for reform but this idea of dismantling law enforcement of just completely defunding and closing your eyes and hoping hoping for the best this approach is is completely wrong and it has ultimately failed right so you know this this idea of dismantling the police we have done this now in minneapolis this has been the experiment and the experiment has failed a lot of us at the time including don samuels who i interviewed he said that when he when he saw the city council say that they would dismantle the police they were devastated they were alarmed they were they were shocked by this this kind of blunt statement they were scared for uh, for what was going to happen and their fears turned out to be completely warranted completely correct because homicides spiked violent crimes spiked carjackings robberies all of it and so this entire experiment of, of defunding the police or really i mean just it's it's not so much that the police were defunded in minneapolis it was just that the police were demoralized they stopped engaging in proactive policing, which is going out and, and stopping people and engaging wow. in, in, uh, in, in, in activity that would wow. deter crime. So they, so they stopped that. And so crime has increased. And so it's time for us to actually look at real solutions. And I don't want to put you in a bad spot. And because uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I think you're doing great work for the New York Post. I don't want to get you out. You're a reporter. You know, I, I don't want to make you get into an opinion debate with me, but I just want to throw it out there and feel free to pass if you want. And my comments a bit snarky, not snarky at you, but snarky at the people that want to defund the police or demoralize the police or whatever. But I got an experiment I would love to see some city try. I'd rather, I want someone to go into the school systems and rather than teaching young kids about sexuality and transgenderism and non-binary and pronouns and all, and, and the 1619 project, I want to see some city say, you know what, we're going to go into the school system and teach compliance with the police and how to actually engage with the police. If you get pulled over, here's what you should do, X, Y, and Z. I would love to see someone try that program in junior highs and high schools and maybe second, third grade. It's more appropriate than a lot of the stuff they're teaching. I could I would love to see the impact of a community 
that has been provided people the training for how to deal with the police. And let's see what the impact of that type of training and schooling has in the community. Am I crazy for thinking that? No, no, you're not. And, and just to be clear, by the way, I'm actually not a reporter. I'm actually an opinion writer. So I, so I regularly write about my opinions oh, my on, on, ra- yeah, no worries, on race issues. So it's so I'm not I'm not uh, alien. I'm not foreign to the uh, gotcha. controversy over my opinions on these issues. Um, no, but I, I actually totally agree with you. You know, there are many cases which stem from black suspects who who disobey police commands, who are resisting arrest, who are not listening to officer commands, and then the situation escalates. There are so many cases like this. Um, there, there was the the infamous Jacob Blake case from last year when the police arrived, and uh, Jacob Blake he was uh, wrestling the officers and uh, like completely resisting arrest, and then he had a knife on him, and then he reached to the ground and grabbed the knife and tried to swing it at the officer, and the officer decided to shoot. And right away there were riots in uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and and the media the consensus and the progressive consensus that this was another act of systemic racism you know joe biden tweeted out another black man was was killed by the officers systemic non-compliance is what we're dealing with yeah non-compliance is a lot of time and and, and i yeah yeah Yeah, i i I agree i would even say the george floyd case and i believe Derek chauvin uh engaged in misconduct criminal misconduct but i also think that george floyd uh, provoked the, pro- the, the problem escalating. Guy gets in the back of that police car, George Floyd is free right now to do as much fentanyl as he wants to do. Everybody knows that. And, and Rob, really thank you for coming on. We're gonna have you back, now, and particularly now that I know you're an opinionist. We'll exchange some opinions moving forward. Great job at the New York Post, appreciate you coming on. Jimmy, you're former law enforcement. What do you think about my plan of teaching everybody how to comply with the police? I've been pulled over, I bet you, 30 times in my life. No police officers ever laid a hand on me. I don't know, maybe my parents just trained me better or whatever. And I've had bad engagement with police, but it's never escalated to any violence. They've been disrespectful. I've had police try to provoke me. But I know how to de-escalate situations. I don't rely on them to de-escalate. I de-escalate. Because there's nothing a cop, there's nothing you can say that's going to provoke me to do something stupid. It's just just not, because I'm in control of me. And so I've had, I'm telling you, in L.A., I got pulled over by a cop. This dude seemed to be some sort of redneck, seemed to have some kind of problem with me. What the hell gave you that idea, boy? Go ahead, I'm listening. <laughs> this dude kept trying to poke at me. I just kept poking him back with, con- with kindness and positive en- energy. And the dude folded. You could just see it in his face. I was, you know, at that time I was driving my black Mercedes. Mm-hmm. I was coming back from Las Vegas, driving from Las Vegas to L.A. And this dude thought he had him one. And I just kept, I said, no, sir, I'm sorry for blah, blah, blah. He eventually folded. You could see the frustration, exactly. like, damn, I can't provoke this one. Because you didn't give him what he wanted. 
and he let me go, gave me a warning. I had done something wrong, but he let me go, gave me a warning. You could just, damn it. I wanted to provoke this one. He got back on, he was on a motorcycle, he got back on his motorcycle and said, that dude beat me, he was too good for me. And <laughs> I'm just, I'm, Jim, I was a chronic speeder when I used to drive all the time. I've been pulled over many, many times. I, in South Carolina, I got totally mistreated by a cop, several cops, talking crazy to me, the whole, but no one ever laid a hand on me because of the way I responded. I need to be the professor of police compliance, and they should bring me in to talk to kids, bring me to jails, bring me to crack out, to trap houses, and oh, you're high? Let me tell you what you do if, you, if you're driving home and you get pulled over and you're high. Let me tell you how to handle that. I could be, this could be a new career for me. Just going from trap house to trap house to jails and schools, and just teaching people like, now nah, I know how to handle that situation. Kill them with kindness. Let me ask no matter you what they say. Yeah, go ahead. You remember you and I going to uh, Denver for the Denver game? Broncos, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we do, used to do, make do, that. Do you, remember, do you remember me driving? Remember Probably. Me, do you remember me getting pulled over by the police? I don't remember that. Yeah, you I got, got pulled, pulled over by the police. Yeah. He said I was doing 90. Yeah. And then at one point he asked me to step out of the car. And when I went back and talked to him, then I came back and you asked me, why did he have me step out the car? He, at which time when I stepped out, by the way, I was doing, I think he, remember he said I was doing like 85 or 90. Right. I was doing like something I was dead wrong about. Yeah. But he, I, he asked me to step out of the car and step back to the car. Then actually when I got back to the car, he, after he had ran my information, he found out that I was in law enforcement. Yeah. And he asked me, well, why didn't you tell me that you was in law enforcement? Like, why did, in other words, why didn't I give him, why didn't I let him know? And I'm like, because I was wrong and that was it. And he, he actually stepped, stepped me back, called me back there to tell me how much he appreciated that for me not trying to, hey, yeah. man, I'm a cop, give me a pass. I was pretty much like, hey, if you're going to give me a ticket. Bottom line, it's exactly what you're saying. It's a way in which your interaction. You know, it's also called verbal judo, meaning, in other words, it's the, this is somebody's action, your reaction. Your reaction causes a person's action. So, you know, it's verbal judo. Well, I, I'm going to say to you, to, I'm going to say something to you to get the reaction that I want. It's just that simple. Trust me. And talking about George Floyd, I'm not going to say that he hurt himself. He damn sure didn't do himself no favors. He didn't help himself. None at all. Yeah. Okay. And the thing that happened with George Floyd in that situation, Jason, is exactly what you're talking about. He just happened to run up on the right, you know, like they say, Ray Charles said, you got the right one. He got the right one that day. He, 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 he ran up on, on, on an officer that, that oh, really? You want to act like this? Well, I want to act like this. And you had a perfect storm. All right. When we come back, Uncle Jimmy has a Bible story. I can't wait. Hallelujah. You guys hit that YouTube.com slash Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Subscribe, hit the notifications. Get yourself in the right mindset for Uncle Jimmy's Bible story. Get your mind right. Get your mind right.
Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. My favorite time of the show. We don't get this every day, but when we do, I've come, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I, I've, you know what? I threw my pen to the ground. I wanted to take notes. Toss me another pen, Jim. Uh, it's time for an Uncle Jimmy Bible story. Uncle Jimmy, what you got? <clears throat> got a simple little story today, man. This story here today is the simple story that we've all heard of. It's the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son. The prodigal son. Yeah. Prodigal son is a real simple story. Three people, two sons and a father. Said that the father. That's kind of like you got. You got that. Same, same thing. Same thing. That's Middle why I chose. That's why I chose this story. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, the, the Bible said that the father was a wealthy man. Now it didn't stay different than you, but go did, ahead. Well, you're damn right. The father didn't work for you. Uh, <laughs> But, but, but it's, he said that he was a wealthy man. It didn't say where he got his money from or it didn't say where he got his wealth. But word on the street was that he may or may not have been running uh, bootleg wine between Jerusalem and Egypt. And that's how he got his riches. Look, it sounds like my dad. My dad sold liquor. Well, that, that could be. It's profitable amongst our people. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, the, the older son, the one son, they said he was a homebody. Now, they said that he was that son that stayed in daddy's basement played Fortnite all the time, and listened to Liberace records. Fortnite and Liberace. That's what they said. That's a heck of a combination. Okay, and the the Bible also said, and I thought this was very important, it said that he wasn't too easy upon the eyes. An ugly child. Must have been the ugly child. An ugly child. Hmm. All okay. Right. Now the other. Now the other. Lock. But go ahead. Now, now the other child. Now what was exactly the opposite? He was what they called a looker. Really? He was he was more of a ladies' man. Mm. Okay. He he, he he was he was that son that kind of liked that street life a little bit. Like the blue M and M's. Whatever. We look here, man. I, I'm not gonna judge him or nothing else. All I'm gonna say is he was that one that 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 he didn't know how to come in out the out the cold. He he, he liked the snow. He like he liked the. He liked that booger sugar is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Is in the Bible? The, 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 I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is how it happened. And see, what I'm trying to tell you is what the story tells you is that no matter how you raise your kids, no matter how well you try to raise them up to be right, it still don't stop them from turning crazy. And that's what happened with this son. The Bible says that he is the first man to utter the phrase, it's my money and I want it now. <laughs> he told his daddy, I want my inheritance now. now but that kind of reminds me of, uh, what was the Jerry Maguire movie, Show Me the Money? Yeah. He shouted out, show me the money. To well, th- th- this, this, is what he said to his, this is what he said to his father. And see, you have to understand, th- this was hard for his father because his father's like, you got a right to ask for the money. But see, the father also knew that that son wasn't going to do right with that money. He knew, if son, if I give you this money, you're not going to do right. And sure enough, he gave him his inheritance. And the Bible said that the boy thought he was prince. The Bible said that the boy parted like he thought it was 1999 A.D. <laughs> the Bible said that the boy went to the club and made it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Ooh. Sound like some of your mess in Vegas back in the day. <laughs> it does, actually. But then, sure enough, you know, just like, just like with you, all good times, all good things must run out. And they said that it got to the point that when the money ran out, the son found himself having to compromise himself simply for food. 
Wow. Now I ain't never been there. All right, then. They said that he, that they said he found himself having to eat and sleep with the hogs. Huh? Now you see what done happened? And then while he laying there with the hogs, suddenly he realized, he said, man, if I'm going to be living like this, man, I can go live in my daddy's backyard. See there? And, and, and see, see, see what happened? It was at that moment that he realized he got up. Because something inside of him, he said, boy, get up. That was that Holy Spirit inside of him telling him to go back home. He got up and he took one step. See, God tell you, if you take one step, I'll take two. See, so he got one, took one step to go home. God took two more. Next thing you know, he's walking home. By the time he got to the overpass and looked down at the house, looked down at the house, daddy's standing there waiting on him. Come on, son. He said, come on. He could see him. He told him, he said, hey, here come my son. He said, go get thy finest brim. He said, fetch me thy finest robe. He said, my prodigal son is returned. He told him, he said, we're going to have a party. He said, bring thy fattest heifer for my son has come home. A blue M&M. This is what he said. <laughs> and see, this, this is what I love, see, because what that meant was the son done came home. They're about to have a party. They're about to have a fish fry. They're about to have a celebration. They're about to have women up here doing the electric slide. They all going to be talking about hands on your knees, hands on your knees, hands on your knees for Jesus. They're going to be doing that. You know, because it's a joyous occasion because his son has come home. See there? And that's the moral of this story. We always talk about the mother's prayers, but we don't talk about a father's prayers. We don't talk about the fact that a father can pray to bring his child home. See, because that's what brought that son home was the father's prayers. See, he also had another son. That other son got upset. Everybody enjoyed the fish fry, but the one brother. Because he like, well, why are you giving him this? He said, I ain't never done nothing. I ain't never went out and done nothing like that. And that said, that's it. That's exactly it. Your ass ain't never left the house. <laughs> what you do? You, you want credit for doing what you're supposed to do. Kind of sound like the black man is like, I'll take care of my kids. <laughs> what the hell are you supposed to do? Run over them with a dump truck? You want credit for doing what you're supposed to do. My son left, saw the heirs of his way, and came back home. That's the beauty. That's what we as man got to learn to do. We see the heirs of our ways. Rectify your wrong. Ask God for forgiveness. Turn around. Come on back home. That's what we need to do. Prodigal son. I think you butchered the moral of that story in terms of not, not that the moral was wrong, but you, when you brought in the other son and his jealousy and bitterness, kind of undercut. You know, you normally, you end on a happy note. It, 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 it wasn't undercutting. It, it, it's the fact of, come on, man. The brother came home, man. You, you, you didn't even go to the party. You, you, you didn't even show up. Well, the, the, some kids like being an only child. Some kids like all the attention on themselves. But you know what, man? Uh, let, me, let me tell you this about this story, though. Honest to goodness, man. Yeah. It is no joke, no, no pun intended. And there is no greater joy in the world than seeing your child come back home, coming back in after you thought that child was lost. It's no greater joy in the world than to see that child, see God bring that child back home. Probably how my family felt. You know, I was just going to tell you, boy, you think it's been a minute. Let me tell you something, sir. It's been a many a night. 
Joyce and her prayers brought you back home, not you and your quick wittedness. You know, what's funny is you mentioned that uh, 40 days and 40 nights. It made me think of a story that, you know, once I went to Las Vegas for three days mm-hmm. and came home 19 days later. <laughs> That's a true story. That's a true story. I got a partner, uh, Troy McSwain. Mm-hmm. This is, and I, I don't, should I tell this? Am I, I'm, Why not? Hell, we, come on, we don't care. Go ahead. We had, I was living in Kansas City. Troy, I Troy. You was living in sin. Come on, man. <laughs> come on. Yeah, man. I got to be careful. Troy's married, no, the whole, no. but anyway. Don't nobody believe you. Go ahead. <laughs> we had three different shipments of women from Kansas City come out over that 19 day period. That's where the hell Lily went them three days. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's... I shouldn't do it. Anyway, and that's why I moved to Nashville. Honestly, goodness, I, I, I got it. So you bought your debauchery here? No, no. I brought... That's why people in Nashville like me. All right, let's get to our approval rating so I can get out of here. I've got myself in all kinds of trouble. Your phone ringing now, ain't it? Yes. <laughs> What's wrong with you, man? Roger, Roger Goodell, our approval rating uh, for Roger the Dodger. I got him at a job performance of nine. What a terrible job. You got, what you, you got him at a 19 job performance? I like football. What's Roger Goodell got to do with you liking football? Is that his job to produce a product? I like football. Come on, man. Don't question me. Character. I got him at a 13. You got Roger Goodell's, uh, go ahead, at a 24. I forget you. He's a character. He's a face. He's the face of that organization. Authenticity, I have him at a 10. He ain't real. Oh. He ain't about that life. <laughs> Talking about the NFL. The NFL is gay. We're all, we're, we're, we're gay, we're queer, we're proud. No, we ain't. We a bunch of men that like to go out and play football on Sunday. Get away from that mess. It factor, I got him at a five. You got him at zero? Because he ain't, he ain't, this mess that he's doing, this whole lift every voice and sing is going to make all the, make all our problems go away. That ain't it, man. You need to stop that, man. And then finally, we have him, I, we both have him as dumpster fires. I got him at a 37, you got him at a 47. So as much as you like football and allegedly like Roger Goodell, he's still a dumpster fire. Hey, man, he's a face. He's the face of the franchise. All right, that's it, and that's all for us. We'll see you on Monday.